Welcome to Horses for Future. This is the podcast that explores what horse people can do to help with the climate change crisis. I've been traveling all over the planet via the internet, not via airplanes, but via the internet, much more carbon friendly, visiting with friends of mine who have horses and who have uh, different horse experiences from mine because they're living in different climates. And we've been looking at how we are keeping horses, how we're managing the land, some of the changes that we're making as we think about not just our horses' well-being, but also the planet's well-being. And today I'm visiting with a really good friend of mine, Marla Foreman. Marla is just a great person to have this conversation with. Because Marla, you started out, here I am telling you where you, where you started out, but you started out um, in New Mexico on a ranch, very different climate from upstate New York. And then you moved to Washington State, but not the part of Washington State that I'm familiar with that is coastal and wet, but the other side of the mountains, so much drier climate. And while you were there, you had an O2 composter, which is one of the things I definitely want to talk about. And now you're out on the East Coast, uh, up in the um, uh, Boston area, and you were up in uh, Quebec, Canada as well. So you've, you've had the experience of very different climates and very different horse care. And... Uh, you are both a vet and a horse trainer, which gives a really interesting perspective because when we talk about managing pasture and we want to manage pasture for the good of our horses, that if we have well-managed pastures, that that helps mm-hmm. to keep our horses healthier. Well, you've got more than just a horse owner's perspective on this, you have a veterinarian's perspective on this. So um, where should we begin in this conversation? Should we talk a little bit about about growing up on a ranch in New Mexico and what it's like to have horses and that kind of Yes. So I was in the northeastern New Mexico, the high plains, and we had an average of about 20 inches of moisture a year. And as you said, according, compared to most horse people, lots of land. Um, We had at home, the pasture the horses ran in most of the time was two square miles. Oh. That's about 1,300 acres. Oh, so when you want to get your horse to go for a ride, You drove out in the car and honked the horn and the whole herd ran into the corral. Ah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And and presumably if uh, you you learned, since you were on a ranch, that you learned to drive perhaps before the legal uh, age. Way way before. Yeah. As soon as my feet would reach the pedal. Yes. You could drive out into the pasture and honk the horn. You weren't having to wait for a grown-up to do it for you. No. No. And and the horses all came running, and mm-hmm. and the one that you wanted would be in that crowd, presumably. That's right. There, you know, ten or twelve, oh. ten to fifteen of them usually, and then I would kick, collect the one I wanted, do what I wanted to do, and usually just then turn the whole group back out again. Sometimes we did have two <clears throat> smaller pastures near the house that were holding pens for. That's what we consider them, holding pens for cattle overnight or something when we were shipping or something like that. And they were only like half a mile by, I don't know, 150 yards. It's hard even for me to imagine that. (laughs) I know, I know. And sometimes I kept one or two horses in there to, a couple of horses in there to play with. And so I'm I'm guessing that, that when you started to move into other areas where horses had more, 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 I'll call it tightly managed, right? more time in stalls, smaller paddocks, smaller social groups, that mm-hmm. you started to encounter behavioral problems that you probably never 
had to deal with? Yeah, well, there are two things I would say. One, actually three or four things. Growing up, we actually, when we moved to the ranch, it was all one piece open pasture. Okay. And we actually divided it into smaller, mind you, still one square mile pastures. So we could rotate them. Okay. So yes, on a larger period than might do with horses, but in, in the smaller groups we have, but um, we would graze one section. And when that one got started to get short, they would get shifted to another one so it could grow. And so when you say we, pasture, you know, for yes. me growing up on the East Coast, I see pasture as green grass, dense, you know, and, and herbaceous plants, but very densely growing together. A um, carpet of green. What not is, as dense, often not as green, but yes, that same idea. Okay. Grass, short grass prairie. Okay. And so the horses could, without having to walk huge distances, they could get sufficient quantity of yes 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 and they had three water sources in the two square mile pasture one at the house and one sort of at each end on the other side so they're about a mile apart okay and so when you moved from the ranch into other areas where the climate was different the amount of acreage was different what did you start to see um, well, I was going to give you a couple more points. One is we didn't really have any behavioral problems, certainly none that were attached to limited space because they could move all the time they wanted. And two, I never saw a colicky horse yeah. all the time I was growing up. I never saw a colicky horse either all the time. Yeah. We had 15 horses. We had a couple that got really fat, but we never had a horse with foot problems and we never had a collar. Yeah. They got hurt, but they didn't get sick. <laughs> right, right. It's really interesting that change yeah. because yeah. I did not I did not see a colicky horse until I was in my twenties. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I saw a laminitic horse. You know, I'd have to really think about when did I see first truly laminitic horse and it was quite a while after that so but yeah. I'm not I'm not surprised that you did not yeah. see colic with horses living out on the ranch yeah so the move from New Mexico to Washington how, right. ma how many acres did you have there well I I had a couple of places first, but when I ended up with my place in Washington, I had six acres and four acres of that was pasture. So a po not even a postage stamp compared no, to what you were used no. to. <laughs> so what were some of the adjustments that you had that you had to make in your thinking to go from, I have all the land, you know, the, this huge universe of land right, to right. not even a postage stamp? Yeah, I didn't do it directly, okay? There were some steps along the way where I was usually boarding my horses at somebody else's place. But basically, what I did learn as a kid growing up in New Mexico is we rotated pastures to give them time to regrow. So that was part of my initial plan when I moved in. The whole place was one pasture when I moved in. And I divided it into four sections of about an acre each with the idea that in that area, it took about, it's supposed to take 17 to 18 days to regrow. This is really arid ground, arid area, as in seven to nine inches of rain a year, but we had irrigation. So you had less rainfall. Less rainfall. But you, yeah. you irrigated. We did irrigate. Okay. And so because I was running a barn and I had, 12 to 15 horses there, they got turned out for breakfast. <laughs> okay. So two to three hours in the morning. And that way one paddock could handle them for six to seven days before it started getting too short. Yeah. And then they'd shift to the next one, more walk the old one, just to even it out. And, and we just rotated through. There are a couple 
of interesting things. This was a sand, would have been initially a sand base. And we had a, when I moved in, there was a big sand pit out in the middle of what ended up being one of the paddocks. And I, because I was picking up the manure in those paddocks, we ended up putting the manure into that sand pit you know, for the first two years, I guess. We just put everything in that sand pit. And by the third year, it was just a growing. And by the fourth year, you couldn't tell it from the rest of the pasture. I'm not surprised. But would the, yeah. horse, would the horses graze there? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, once it turned into, into grass, they would graze there. But there hadn't been anything deposited there for a couple of years by the time it turned to grass. Which brings us to the O2 composter. Because mm -hmm. you are one of the few people I know, other than myself, who has an O2 composter. And you had right. yours long before I built mine. So right. uh, I suppose we should describe it first. And then we'll get to the what made you choose it. And then right. uh, how did it work for you? So okay. would you like to describe the O2 composter? So, yes. So it basically, mine had three bays. Yours has four? Four, yes. Four. Yeah. And they were eight by eight by four feet top, tall on the sides, just a row of them side by side. And underneath there is a concrete foundation with holes under the middle of the bays. And mine had boards that span the whole bay. I don't think yours does, with little gaps in between them. And then at the end, I had a fan that was on a timer, and it had PVC attached to PVC pipes that ran to one for each of the bays. Yes. And I could turn the air to a specific bay or to two or three bays, and I could adjust the timer so that it blew air certain amounts of time every so often. So we got it aerated, say, every half hour, or every hour, or, and how long it blew at that time. So it kept the, bear, the bays aerated without having to do any turning of the manure. Um, and we had a long, three foot long thermometer. Yes. <laughs> the temperatures, because it was important to keep the temperature between, we wanted to have it up to 133 or so for two or three days to kill parasites, but you didn't want to get it over about 140 because then it would start to cook too much, right? Um, kill the good stuff too. So in the winter, the hard part was getting it up to 133. And in the summer, I had to increase the air to keep it down from getting too hot. And it had a roof over it to keep it from getting too wet which actually wasn't too big of a problem. And in the summer, I actually had to water the base, keep them wet enough. <laughs> yes. yes, more, more detail. It's really cool. Because basically on my setup, we didn't use a whole lot of bedding. And in my setup, it took a month to fill a bay. It cooked for a month. And then over the next month, um, we spread it. So you usually let it have a couple of weeks of rest and then a couple of weeks to get it spread. Yeah. And then we'd start over. Yes, that, that's why I built four bays because right. it's you know you had the month to you you had, you filled it, then mm -hmm. it needed a month to cook, a month to sit. So that with the fourth right. bay, I, yeah. I could sort of keep up since I was since I didn't have a tractor, I could keep right. up with the filling and the emptying, and mm -hmm. still give it the three months. But right. the key to it, I mean, it's when you look at the construction. It's really a very simple idea it that, is. that yeah. there is a PVC pipe that runs into the bottom of this bay and okay. boards that have ours have holes drilled in them to let okay. the, the air through. And, and so as you push air into that PVC pipe, mm -hmm. then the air is, is being pushed into the bottom of the bay and right. somehow... It always seemed to me, how in the world is this air? When you've got this fully loaded bay, how does this air <laughs> manage to get through? Or that the holes don't get clogged up. But it did seem to work. So it was really cool because in the winter that would come on and you would just see the steam rising from yes. the base. Yes. It sits really quietly and then it would come on and the steam would just start coming up again. <laughs> wow. Which is good evidence that it's doing something. You don't have to turn it. 
So no. all you have to do is fill the bay and right. and walk away and the fan does the rest. And you know the you you just have to remember to change which vent which bay you're pumping the air into. Yeah. And other than that, it's no work in terms of building the compost. And it right. does build really interesting compost. So you told me the story of using your lesson kids to help you empty the bay. Yes. So I had, yeah, they did most of the work actually. And so I had one of the, well, I had several of them, but one of them was like really cool. Cause so she helped spread up on, and we actually spread it because it was easier. They tended to start at the closest to the bay and work outward. Yes. <laughs> And so she had done that. So you're spreading directly onto your paddock. Directly onto the paddock. So yeah. so you've you've given this child the direction that pasture number two is the pasture right. we're spreading onto. So take your wheelbarrow, right. or did you have a did you have a spreader no. or no? No. So it's take your wheelbarrow, walk it out to the paddock, dump it. Take your next wheelbarrow, walk it out to the paddock a little further dump it and spread it. And of course, yep. the child is going to start as close to the gate as possible that's right. that's because right. that's easiest. So it was really cool because after a couple of weeks of this, and it was early, it was probably February or March, okay? It was early spring. We get grass coming in pretty good by late March. Anyway, her mom comes to pick her up and she grabs her by the hand and drags her out and says, look, look, <laughs> because you could see that the grass where they had spread the manure was taller, thicker, and darker Wow, than where they had. So really good evidence. And she was really impressed by that too. Yeah, it was really cool. But I thought it was really fun that she noticed that and was just so excited about the fact that Yes. She can't make it that way. <laughs> and and again, did the so the horses would graze on those areas that you spread. So yeah, because it was composted, it didn't seem to be a problem. What I did make sure was I tried to spread it on the paddocks. So we finished grazing one, we cleared off the old manure, mowed it, and then spread. Okay. So it would have like three weeks before they got back to it after it was spread. And they're having any trouble with them not grazing it properly. And the part of the reason for doing this aerobic composting and getting the temperatures up is my understanding from the the O2 composting people right. is that you are killing the the parasites. So right. you're you're killing the eggs from the parasites. So you're not getting into a we're just spreading right. You know, um, raw manure and raw manure and, back, back out on the pasture. Right, right, right. And you're also killing some of the weed seeds that you don't want. Right. So that taking that processed compost and putting it directly onto the field is a very doable thing. Yeah. And yeah. Partic particularly since you are in an arid climate where you need to build up the organic matter in those soils, it's right. really important. Really. Because it does, it starts basically as a sand dune. Wow. Um, and so you really need to keep building up the organic matter to keep it in good shape. Wow. Makes a big difference. Yeah. And by doing that, when I started, the paddocks were in really bad shape because the people had just, before me, had had horses, but they had just run them out on the whole area. And I think they just left them out there all the time. Um, and it was not very much grass and really weedy and sort of pitted in places where they, you know, wore it down or made it muddy and stuff. And just by rotating, not overgrazing it, mowing off the tall stuff, stuff that the horses didn't eat once a month, basically. Yeah. And then spreading manure on it. By the time I left, Actually, I would say the last several years I was there. So it took about six years, I'd say, to get that good grass, little weeds, and real, just a really nice coverage that grew really well. And if it rained a bunch or something and it was going to be muddy, the horses just didn't go out because I wasn't going to let them tear it up. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but then I'm assuming that when, because you had more organic matter in your soil, right. that when it did rain, that your soils held the water. Yes, And it, it did. didn't just disappear off your land. No, it held it really well. 
Yeah, because that yeah. that's I think one of the real something that's really important. I mean, this year we've had so much rain. Yes. I mean, July yes. was. Just, we had nine inches the first two weeks of July here. Yeah, we had something like I mean, it just never stopped. It just rained and rained. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had so I. It's been a while since I've put up a Horses for Future podcast because I've basically been dealing with my own mini climate change crisis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had some work done around the house, which disturbed the soil. And then those the rain started and just came down. Because um, we're used to getting the thunderstorms where for a few minutes, you, you just you can't even hear yourself think the water is coming yep. down. So hard, yeah. so fast, so heavy. But this would yeah. come down like that, but all night. You know, it would mm -hmm. just go on and on. And there were communities in my, we didn't have what Germany had, but there were communities near us where the roads were washed out and it was a real mess. But I had a floating basement. I had, yeah. I had water up over my ankles in my basement. Ooh, yeah. yeah, I don't just mean the floor was damp. I mean, I have, yeah. that's, that basement will do that. But, but the basement was floating. And Ugh. so I spent July, you know, when I saw that, not only did I, you know, get people in to say, <laughs> help, <laughs> I have to get this water out of here. But then everything that was in the basement, I carried yeah. upstairs because I just thought if I don't get it out of the basement, given how damp everything is, that the mold is going to be horrendous. So yes. I, I had I had two days of really intense carrying everything up, and yes. you know how you always exaggerate how many times you've gone up and downstairs. <laughs> well, I I didn't need to exaggerate because I could count the boxes that right. I had stacked. And at the point where I paused to count the boxes, I had 75 boxes. Wow. That's, you know, over 100, that's 150 trips up and down mm -hmm. those stairs. And every one of those boxes, because they were kept filled with papers and books and files of right. know, sort of files that, you know, they had to have weighed 25, 30, some of them 50 pounds. It was like, so, so, so it's been a little while since I have had the, uh, the time and the energy. I'm still working. I'm still working progress yeah. of getting everything, but it does give you an appreciation for what other people are experiencing to a much greater degree. So I had water up over my ankles. There were people who were sitting on their rooftops in yeah. Germany. Yeah. So, yeah. and in Belgium. So this was yeah. minor. Yes. Yeah. You know, don't even put it in the same sentence, Alex. Yeah. yeah. But we're all getting, we're out on the West Coast. These horrific oh. fires. So glad I'm not there now. <laughs> yes. Now, were, would you have been in the fire zone? Were you... Not in the fire zone. Um, but there has been a lot of smoke zone. there. Yeah. But, you know, they've just... Probably since the middle of May, they've been over 100 more than they have. Wow. Yeah. Because if if Portland and and Seattle were having temperatures, what was it? 117. Yeah. So you yeah. your area must have just baked. Just been baking. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I talked to my friend Judy there, who has beauty at her place, and. She says it's hard to keep weight on the horses yeah. because they're stressed enough by the heat. I, I, I can't imagine how hard it must be yeah. on the horses to stay, to stay, to keep their body temperatures down mm -hmm. in safe ranges. Yeah, yeah. To maintain horses in these extreme, in the extreme heat and. You know, and yeah. particularly if you've got horses in the kind of situations where they are in buildings and you've got to run fans for them. Yeah. Or even if they're out, it can be so hot. I know Cindy mm -hmm. 
was running uh, fans out in her running sheds last year right. for her, her yeah. older horses. And they were really struggling to keep their body temperatures down. So that's a complication. Or we're in areas where... There tends to be a breeze most of the time. Yeah. When it's not a high wind, so... <laughs> and then you have the other extreme in these really wet climates. Yeah. Now, we put in an enormous amount of drainage around the barn. So I have... We have no mud at the barn, which... Right. I, I, it's like, yay, we have no, it's always for the people who are dealing with mud. It's like, oh, shut up, go away. You know, <laughs> we don't I am it. so thrilled because we've done the same thing here. Yeah, um, so we don't have mud. Yeah, because um, otherwise you have horses gravel, replacing tons of gravel on a regular basis, but we have no mud. Yeah, and it is so nice. But That's, we were, we have a hay field, and it should have been cut the end of June. It got cut last week. Yeah. I know we had it's so the first time it was dry enough. Yep. Normally, my hayloft would be full around the Fourth of July. We right. just got hay. Yeah. Like like you a week ago, because they they you couldn't cut it because the rains were kept coming, and when they did start to let up, the fields were too wet for them to get equipment yes. on. Yeah. Our drains really well. It's a little bit on the slope, and it drains really well. So we actually got it cut. While the guy was waiting for his field to dry out enough. Wow. <laughs> and we got stuck in the same boat you were with your stuff in the basement. Dasha and I hauled that hay in the ground into the barn because we had it all set up. It's supposed to be dry for like five days. And we had help coming to help. And we weren't going to be any rush to haul it in, right? And the guy texts and says the hay is bailed. And we looked at the forecast and it was supposed to rain that night. And of course, that was the one day that our on-call helper wasn't available. Yep. Um, she'd already told us that that day was not available. And we were like, not a problem. It's supposed to be dry for another three days. Oh, we, yeah, there we put 7,000 pounds of hay in the barn. Wow. Wow. We were very proud of ourselves. Yes. <laughs> yes. You feel very fit afterwards. That's for yeah. sure. Yes. But and especially because we could both move the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm not sure what that would do because what we've done in the past here, well, last year, so the first two years I was here, the first year they were going to bail in the fall and never, never got enough dry weather to do it. Yeah. And next year they bailed, but they had to bail it early and it was too wet. So a bunch of the hay had to be dumped. Yeah. And so last year i said let's not bail it let's just strip graze it oh and we grazed until into december wow and part of that i remember was because of jane jackson's setup yes and the fact that we do rotational grazing anyway but by say the first of october because grass isn't growing we don't have any grass in the paddocks and the horses have to come off but by setting up the strips, we grazed all the way into December. Wow. So it's basically standing hay. Yep, it's standing hay. Yeah. Just grazed it down. Yep. Worked great. So you can you can cut it and feed it as hay, or you can use yeah. it as standing well, we hay. We don't have any luck getting it cut, you know, and this year we're going to have probably less. Yep. Because it's not going to have very much time to regrow, although we have a lot of water for it to make it grow faster. <laughs> and we compost everything just in compost piles here, eight compost bins, and we just compost all the hay and all the manure and shavings, and eventually it gets spread back out you know, on either the paddocks or the hay fields. So we're all feeling the effects of, of climate change one way or the other, and of course the people who have their horses in situations in these wet areas where they don't have the drainage and now you've got horses standing in wet ground and their feet just must be a real challenge and this year we you know we've had the rain to turn the horses have to grow the grass but we haven't been able to turn the horses out because it's too wet yeah so you can't win for trying is the expression <laughs> yeah. and of course right now the, the 
for me, the fields are fine, but right. the horses won't go out because it's too buggy. It's like, yeah. oh, we don't want to go out. Yeah. You can open the gate, but that's that's all right. You can open the gate, but we're not going to go through it. We turn them out at night now. Well, that's um, what I do. I, you know, I open the gate. I usually will open the gate at midnight, but I, uh -huh. they don't, it's like, no, no, no. Give us a few weeks and we'll go out, but not right now. I will come and go some. Yeah. Uh, depending on the night as to who goes when, but yeah. they'll, they will go out for some period of time and then they'll be back in again. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with how hungry they are versus how buggy it is. So um, having had, so you're, you know, so you're now on the East Coast and clearly we are getting a lot of rain, yes. <laughs> especially compared to what you experienced in New Mexico and, and in Washington state and your, the horse, you know, it's less acreage, horses are maintained very differently in each of those environments. So in terms of general takeaways or things you have learned through the years of managing multiple horses and also things you have observed as a vet. So you're not just looking at how are your horses faring on your own property, but also what do you see when you were out and about when you had right. your practice in Washington state, you will see, you know, I know, traveling as a as a clinician that I got a lot of really good ideas about how I wanted to set up my barn when I finally built it. And you also see things where you think, mm, not not the way I want to go by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. So um, in terms of looking at managing horses, so we've got we've got two things that we want to keep in mind. We want to manage horse well well three we want to manage horses for our own convenience right you know that um and and we want to manage horses well so they are healthy and we want to manage the land with our horses on it so that when we step back we're saying that land is healthier and in better condition because of the way that I'm managing it, rather than, oh, I better move now because I've had my my horses on the land so long that I totally destroyed it. So yes. like what you yes. were describing, out. yeah, yeah, what you were describing with your property in Washington State when you moved in, mm -hmm. the pastures yes. were hard used, and yes. by the time you moved out, you had you had pastures, green, mm -hmm. healthy pastures. Yes. yes. And we've done the same thing here. When they came here, there was pork paddocks, I think, and they basically, you know, they were divided by horses, but so there were horses in them all the time. Okay. For several hours every day. And then they built the shelters, so they're just running sheds with gravel dry paddocks, three, three paddocks now, three, all one big long shed, but three paddocks. So we could pull them off of the other paddocks we divided them into more paddocks. So now we have 10 Wow, 10 paddocks. paddocks. 10 paddocks. Wow, that gives you a lot wow. of flexibility. Yeah, and we have two groups of horses. Uh, we have a two, two together and three together. And that's just how they get along. <laughs> right, right. So basically, as soon as the grass is growing in the spring and it's not too wet, they can go out on pasture at night. Yeah. And then when they're not on pasture, they have each have a long lane with a hay net at the bottom that has a little bit of nibble grass in it. So most of the summer they'll go out and nibble. It's really short. They don't quite kill it off, but they keep it, you know, right. quarter inch right. <laughs> nibble grass. <laughs> and they have really slow feeder hay nets in the barn. So they're nibble nets with a one inch mesh nets inside. So really slow feeder. Really slow. Well, these horses are pretty good at getting it out, but yeah, it's really slow feeders. Yeah. It's the only way to keep them from emptying them in just a very short period of time. Yeah. So they always have something to eat. They always have room to move. They have shelter. They have drinking post fountains that they just press on the paddle and it fills. And then when they quit drinking, the water runs out again. It's like a frost-free hydrant. Oh, yeah. 
so it doesn't freeze in the winter. They have fresh water whenever they want to drink. And they basically, you know, when they're not on pasture, they're in this other area. When they are on pasture, they can go back into that area anytime they want. And to turn them out, we just open the gate to the paddock we want them in. Yeah, so very easy. No leading them back and forth or anything like that. When we want them in, we call them and they come in. It's really nice. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then we generally, because we would like them to stay used to going in the barn, um, we bring three in, because we have five, and the barn has four stalls. We bring three in each morning. Diamante's been coming every morning because, you know, without having to do any other work at it, a little bit of extra time to work with him coming in and out. Right. He's a youngster, um, so. He's the youngster, yes. Yeah. And then the original pair or the other of the two pairs that we have. And they come in, they get their grain, um, their, you know, their cup of flaxseed and their vitamins. <laughs> their grain. Um, and they hang out a little bit. Maya, the other young horse, and Diamante both gets alfalfa alpha for the protein. And then I, they go, you know, we work yeah. with them or they go back out. I think that is so important. It's, I, we, you know, we both encounter yeah. so many horses who live out 24-7. And it's lovely. Mm -hmm. And it's, they have a nice social group. And they've got room to move around. And they're really, really happy horses. Until, for whatever reason, you need to bring them into a stall. And then right. they can't cope. And yeah. I think as part of regular horse husbandry, that horses need to learn how to be comfortable in, in whether it's a small, truly small paddock or an enclosed stall. They need to yeah. learn to be comfortable because you just never know when stall rest is going to loom its ugly head. Yeah. And that's basically we bring them in for that reason. You know, so they can hang out in the stalls when the trimmer comes to do their feet. Um, so they can hang out in stalls when the vet comes to get shots or something. Yep. Um, but also so that if somebody needs to be in the stall, they're not going to freak out about it. That's right. No. And so they come in every day, spend an hour or two, and go back out. And the ones who don't come in get their breakfast outside, and they don't come in that day. <laughs> So a stall is a comfortable, pleasant place to be. Yes. It's not yes. a stressed place to be. So if, if a horse ever had an injury where they had to be on stall rest, they, right. you could accommodate it without total panic of he's never been in before. Or if you want to go off to a clinic or a show mm -hmm. where there's overnight stabling, your horse yeah. can cope with that. Yeah. Yeah. And most, I mean, a lot of them come in because they've been out like, all night grazing. They'll come in and eat their little bit of grain and lie down. Yeah, take a nap. Take a nap. Yep. Yeah. That they're not hungry. Right. The, and the inside spaces, you know, they're out of the elements. So, so in the yes. winter, it's comfortable. In the summer, yep. they're away from the, the worst of the flies. Right. Um, so it's a, a comfortable place to be. Their friends are around them. We have hardly any flies. But we do have the little gnats that and we've had. They've been worse this year because of the more water. Yeah. Um, and but and and going inside gets rid of those. Yes. So. Yeah. But with careful manure management, and um, fly parasites, we have no flies. We have in the barn. We have because we have swallows. So right. you know the swallows right. are, do, swallows too, but. do a phenomenal <laughs> job with uh, mosquitoes and so on. But once you go out into the fields, the deeper fields, right. then you get yeah. the, the biting flies at the horses. Yeah, the flies are, the fields are, are bad, but they, they most, most of the biting flies go away in the shelters too. And we don't have like the other biting flies that you get around the horses usually. It's really amazing. You know, when we have a fly on a horse, we comment on it. Look, there's a fly. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> I've never seen a place with so few flies, actually. Really That's impressive. impressive. So the fly parasites really work for you, you would say? They have really working here. And how close, to, are there other livestock nearby? Um, there are goats now, a little ways away, and there are also some other horses that come sometimes down across the fence. 
Um, and we've actually put like parasites down along the fence. Ah, okay, some of theirs too. <laughs> um, on one side, there's nothing on the other side. And not much, very close, so it's not too big deal. Yeah. Yeah, because I tried them in Washington State and I didn't have any luck because I had neighbors with sheep too close. And I got this, their flies. When I got rid of most of mine, they just came to visit. Yes. Oh, look, please. Look, nobody's yeah. in the way. Yeah, yeah. I've tried them. I tried them uh, one or two years, and yeah. I just it's like, is it or isn't it? And of course, for me, the challenge was uh, they would almost invariably arrive when I was getting on an airplane. Yeah. So yeah. I had to depend on other people to spread them, okay. and who knows whether they were, you know, really uh, yeah. finding the right places to spread them so I I, I rely on on swallows yes they, they do a really good job we have been really pleased to have swallows too because um, yeah they they are uh, huge numbers of flies so yes good. I think we fledged about a hundred swallows out of the barn this year yes which yeah that's a lot that's a lot of insects exactly, but um, and we actually didn't have as many this year. In the past years, we've had three nests, four nests of them. And then they come back and get a second nest. Yeah. Yeah. We've had three co three cohorts of eggs this year, which is yeah. interesting. It's really cool. Around one of the nests, there's a like an insulated wire that sticks out in like a horseshoe shape. Yeah. And you'll see like the whole nesting set of swallows sitting out on it. Yes. And there'll be like six or seven swallows sitting on that. <laughs> After they start leaving the nest and yep. flying out, then the whole group comes back and sits there because they won't fit in the nest anymore. Right. <laughs> well, I'll look out on the, the O2 composter structure, which has, mm -hmm. uh, which has a roof. And the whole length of it will be just a line of swallows. Oh, in the wow. early morning, yeah. all chittering away. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so not only does the O2 composter provide compost, but it also provides uh, the morning uh, uh, gossip rail for the swallows. <laughs> yes, it's really cool when you mow, and as you you sort of like you push the bugs up, and this whole mass of swallows just comes in to get those bugs. Yes, yes, yeah. So I've been doing something a little different this year because. We, we expanded the pasture, which is good for the, the lower pasture. And then with the rain, it started to get away in terms of, uh, yeah. should I mow it? Do I not mow it? And yeah. so it's getting really, really thick. And there are certain areas that have things like the crown vetch that'll really catch the mower and yeah. our pain. So, so I got a very sharp sickle knife. In the evening, I would go down. First, I went down with... with um, and, and hauled it back by hand, and then I got smart. I'd take the uh, lawnmower down, but with the cart hooked behind it. And okay. with my sigh, I just go in, and the areas that are really thick with the things that the horses don't eat, I cut mm -hmm. that down. It's great exercise. And yeah. the, the, those pretty little purple thistles that the horses don't eat, I cut those down. All the areas that are really thick with vegetation that are going mm -hmm. to discourage the grass and be hard to mow, I just go in and cut it by hand right. and then take that up to the goats. And they are thrilled to bits. And what's, <laughs> what's astounding to me is you have, you have goats. You know what hay wasters goats are. You, uh -huh. know, you put in a flake of hay and I don't know what, what they live on, what they eat, but it seems to me that I'm cleaning most of that hay out. And that's a fairly universal thing about goats. But I can take that cartload, and it's, I mean, heaping. You know, if, I, if it were an ice cream cone, it would be a double scoop. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's this heaping cartload. Yeah. And I take it into the goats, and they are thrilled bits. And by the next feeding cycle, it's basically all gone. Wow. It's just extraordinary. Because I have to mow the area the goats are in, because there's all these things they won't eat. Well, I'm, I am delighted by this because 
I really struggle with the mowing of the pastures because especially at the time of the year when the, the, the rabbits are, are nesting in the field, the fields are just rich with insect life. And, right. and I'm forever stopping and moving some, oh, look, there's a, you know, there's a praying mantis. Let me move it yeah. past. And, and why should the praying mantis be more worthy than some smaller insect grasshopper that I can't see or whatever? So I'm really thrilled with this because it's getting, it was, it was getting the pastures back under control. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I'm not, I'm getting the the crown vetch and some of these other things that will so take right. over the pastures that the horses won't touch. I'm taking that back. The goats are providing a very efficient processing plant. You know, when yeah. I think about yeah. the volume of greenery that they are now going to compact down into their little manure balls, yeah. that it's really turned out to be a great way to maintain some of those pastures. Yeah. And then I'll leave some, some sections of it as standing hay for right. the fall and winter. And I'm just it's so it's a different it's a different approach to the field management. Some of the uh, there's the back pasture we cut. So I did have that mode. And the upper pasture I I tend to cut that cuz it's the way it grows it's better off kept um, right. Mode, but the other, it's my little scythe, and um, yeah. go feed, go, go get the salad for the goats. <laughs> <laughs> when we were like early on, before we moved the hay, before we cut the hay pasture, uh, hay field, there's mowing a path so we have a place to walk. And because um, I mean, a lot of hay was like, you know, waist high. <laughs> a little harder walking. Yes. Uh, it's really wet in the mornings, too. Yes. <laughs> so we mowed a place to walk, and then it's like I ended up leaving this big patch off in one corner that I would have mowed because the turkeys needed a place. Ah, yes. To raise their babies. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. And we have a lot, we don't have as much in the fields, I think, because there's a wildlife corridor that goes around, about halfway around. And so I think we don't get quite as much as a, as many of the little animals, and it's really covered in brushy and. Ah, so that's where they nest instead. Yeah, yeah. So well, we certainly get rabbits in the. I get rabbits in the goatery. Um, yes, we get rabbits everywhere to some extent, yes. but. So they're definitely in the fields, but. And here. Uh, yeah, but having the the wildlife corridor. So now, what does that look like? So, so um, rather than fencing out the edge of the property, there's a little teeny stream that runs in wet times. Not usually this time of summer, but it is this year. Yes. <laughs> and rather than fencing across that, the fence runs down inside it. Oh. Um, and so the whole place is enclosed in a five-foot mesh fence. Oh. So we can turn the dogs out and you don't have to worry about it. Yes. Um, the deer can jump over it. Yes. Although we were really careful for a while this spring because we had a fawn. It couldn't jump over it. So we've been really protective of the fawn. <laughs> I think it's jumped out now. <laughs> yeah, that can be really stressful when you get when they get on the wrong side of the fence for, you know, in terms of where their mothers are and they can't find the way out. I think mom jumped in and had the fawn and then they yeah. were in there. Couldn't yeah. get out again because Bond couldn't get out again. Anyway, there's a corridor that runs around. It's trees and brush that runs down there. And it's not used for anything else. So pretty much no people. Well. Yeah. We have bird feeders out there, but that's the only thing uh, <laughs> to go out there for. So a good area for biodiversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of brush for the little animals and stuff too, so. Yes. Yeah. So in terms of what horse people can do for their, the land that they are stewards over, you know, as you look back over your horse-owning career, what would be some of the key elements that you have been experiencing, I think learning? being innovative about how you manage Assuming you have enough land that you can have them out of stalls, okay? 
help so that you can be innovative in how you manage it so that they can have some grazing and say a dry lot area where they're not on the grass so you have a way to get them off of the grass and give the chance to grass the grass or greenery a chance to grow right um, and that you have a way to rotate them on and off so it can different patches so even if they're small patches and you can only leave them on for a little bit i think you're a lot better off having four small patches than one big one right so you yeah. can turn them on they can graze for a little bit you pull them off back off onto the dry paddock um, then get a little bit of grazing if possible figure out a way so they can move more so we don't have like a lane but we have two long paddocks and we're talking 75 or 100 yards long okay and at the far end we have hay both feeder hay nets down there which we put hay in so they'll to make sure they go back and forth right um, in the winter in the summer that's not a big deal because the bottom area is the part that has a little tiny bit of grass and they can reach under the fence and get into the paddocks the edges that are yeah, yeah. so, they, so they want to do that so they tend to go graze a bit and you don't have to worry about the hay down there but yeah. in the winter we put hay down there just to make sure they'll go back and forth and do a little bit more walking yeah um so getting them a place to move even if there's not a lot of space for a reason to move back and forth or to move around um and dividing the grass up so that you can rest it and let it regrow on whatever size spring that is new mexico we did it in sections and in washington i did it in acres and here most of the paddocks are actually under an acre so the concept is the same the concept is the same yes great we put them in they graze off an area um, and like this summer, because the grass is growing so much, they're not really getting a paddock grazed off, but they'll get an area grazed down. And horses prefer short grass, so they'll start going back to the areas they graze yes. and, want, and making it shorter. And when that starts happening, we pull them off and put them on another one that the grass we grow, because they'll graze that part down too short. Yes. Yeah. Um, you start having a putting green. Uh, yes, and then you'll have areas. places in the back that are still three feet tall. Yes. Yes. Um, it worked really well growing up because cattle apparently like taller grass and horses like shorter grass. And since we ran them together, they sort of even things out a little bit more. But since I just run horses now, um, when they start to get it grazed down, they'll tend to go back to the short areas. And as soon as I see that happening, um, we try to just pull them off and move them to a new paddock. And one of the things because that Jane Myers uh, from the, you know, the Equicentral, one right. of the things that I think makes so much sense that she talks about is you know, that you want that dry lot area because you don't want the horses doing their loafing. They're just standing around on compacting the ground, right. uh, mudding the ground in their pasture. That yes. to separate, so you have your grazing bout, great, go out, graze have a lovely time out there, but then come off of that land into your dry lot so you're not compacting the soil. And places the horses. where horses walk a lot, they just turn into rock. Yes. They are so good at tamping the ground down and they just make it hard, really hard. Yeah. Um, so yes, you don't want them pacing or walking or standing on areas where you're trying to go grass. And certainly in this area, when you have when you have those areas, you know, it, it dries out. You get right. the, if you're on clay, you get the you know the hard cracks and so on. Mm -hmm. And then when it does rain, that's yeah. because the the structure of the soil is so badly damaged by the horses. Then what you get is deep muck, yeah, uh, which yep. is just horrible. So that's separating it. This this is your dry lot area. This is where you come for the loafing, for resting, for sleeping, for right. eating the hay net, and yes. the pasture is for grazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that has worked great um, in all the different situations. If you have room, if you have enough paddocks to let each one grow back, or however long it takes in your area to grow back up. Yes. Then. I think you're good. You can just 
you know, we can grade one down, move them to the next one, let that one grow for however long you get through. And that, you know, it depends. Here we have lots, um, partly because in this time of year, usually they're not growing as fast because you don't have as much water. Right. Um, and it's, we need enough to let them have plenty of time to grow back. Um, this year, that's sort of getting a little overgrown each time. <laughs> yeah. Probably because for, you know, most of July, they were doing good if they could get out one or two days a week because it was so wet. Yeah, absolutely. And we did make little places and turn them out for like an hour in places we don't normally turn them out so they could stay used to being out on grass when they couldn't go out because in the paddocks because it was too wet. We have a little tiny paddock attached to the barn that has grass and we grazed that off. And <laughs> we made a little paddock out of the backyard and grazed that off. Yes. <laughs> And we have another one we can't really use because it doesn't have shelter or water and we let them graze there for an hour or two just to keep them used to being on grass because otherwise, you know, we're pulling them off for four or five days at a time concerned about their gut biomes. Yes, yes. It's definitely so something them on these Little patches of grass here and there. Let them graze. Didn't care too much if they've messed that up because it's not a normal pasture. Right. Yeah. And they weren't out there long enough to do a whole lot of that. And then they go back and then they still be in grazing mode when dried out enough to go back on their regular paths. And so the, you know, in that, when you hear some of the reports on uh, the climate change and what, the, what needs to be done, you think, you know, so what difference does it make whether I have a healthy pasture with lots of biodiversity or not. But when you think of the number of horses and the number of us who have, yeah. you know, a, whether it's just a couple of acres, you know, with a house on it uh, mm -hmm. and a couple of horses, that acreage adds up into significant yeah. numbers. Yeah. And so yeah. the more aware we are of some of these, these options of, maintaining horses because I know this was not this was not how I saw pastures being maintained when I was growing up and when I was boarding the horses and so on or traveling to different barns this kind of thinking was absolutely not present but now it's becoming more and more the norm and the more that it is then and the more we model Look, you can have yeah. horses and you can have pastures that look decent. Yeah. Uh, and and our horses, knock on wood, are doing really well. They're really healthy. Then the, the number, the more we do that, the more horse people who really begin to think along these lines, the number of acres that are collectively under our care becomes right. significant. And the more I learn about the, the soil and the, the mycorrhizal fungi and just this amazing yeah. relationship yeah. that plants have with, I mean, it's, that is just so fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. fascinating. And the more we learn, the more fascinating it becomes. And yeah, we are making a significant contribution. Mm -hmm. Maybe not individually. Individually, right. it's not even a drop in the bucket. But collectively, Lots the of more right, the more yeah. we think about these things and care about the land, and you know, it's not a hardship. Horse people can make a difference. It's true that individually, it may not seem as though our actions could possibly make any difference. But of course they do. How I manage my barn and the adjacent paddocks makes a difference to the swallows that nest there. It makes a difference to the monarch butterflies that I leave the milkweed when I mow. And it makes a difference to the deer who has just this moment stepped out of the woods into my backyard, that there is still green space left for her. I can't know all the ways in which my actions connect to the web of life. What is important to me is that on balance, 
these many connections make a positive difference for the environment. Individually, our actions make a difference to those around us. And collectively, horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. Join me next time as we continue this conversation with Marla. She did a really fun experiment to find out the best times to turn her horse out for grazing. And that's what we'll start with when we continue on next time.